Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 81. Make sure you've got money in the reserve because you're going to you're gonna need it, especially if you're truly going to be you know, going down the regenerative journey because it's not like you're going to have perfect finishing quality pasture the first season. It's going to take four or five years in order to start you know, being able to finish on that. At least that's my experience. So be patient. Be patient. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating costs. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. When I think about Long Island, New York, I don't think about grazing. I don't think about farms. But today, we have a guest from Long Island, New York. Stephen Scarenta does grass-fed beef and lamb, as well as some other things that he's got going on. He's in a challenging environment of Long Island. You know the land's not cheap there. Plus, how he started with 20 acres and what he's doing now. I think it's a great episode, and it will surprise you a little bit. At least it did me, because when I think about Long Island, like I said, I don't think about grazing. It's a great episode. I think you'll enjoy it. Before we talk to Stephen, 10 seconds about my farm. So... A few episodes ago, quite a few episodes ago, I talked about my plan for my cows that I put the bulls out there and I was not pulling them early because, in my opinion, a bred cow is worth more than an open cow. It really depends on your market and what you're doing there. And I had the thought or plan I was not going to preg check my cows. In the past, we always do the bioprine and blood pregnancy test. Super easy to pull the blood and then send it off to get tested. The biggest drawback is you've got a, a week or two weeks to wait to find the results. But you can test much earlier than if you're palpating. So 28 days post-breeding, you can find out if they're pregnant. As it started cooling down and I started counting hay bales to see how much I had, looking at my pastures, how much grazing I have to make it through winter, how things are going, I thought it was a wise idea to go ahead and preg check my cows. And that will let me make some decisions 
on do I keep them through winter? Do I not? Obviously, if they're bred, calf on the ground, they're sticking around. Well, I say that. I also weighed calves and estimated weaning weights. And I've got some couple cows that just are not producing much compared to their body weight. Uh, cow efficiency, if you will. I like looking at the the weight of their calf compared to the cow's mature size. So I'm looking forward to getting that back. I should have it back before next week's episode. I'll give you an update and let you know if I'm happy or sad. Sure, it'll be good. Let's talk to Stephen. Stephen, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today. Thank you, Cal. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? We started the, our farm, uh, Akabana Farms, in 2015. We're based on Eastern Long Island, New York, which uh, is not necessarily known as a, an agricultural sector of, of New York, although yeah, the history of Long Island yeah, absolutely includes a fair amount of agriculture, uh, in particular potato farms. Uh, today, we have a lot of vineyards, Eastern Long Island, as well as sod farms and a uh, small but growing number of livestock producers, just like Ecobank. We raise grass-fed, you could say grass-fed and finished beef, pastured lamb, pork, and chicken on the farm. And we sell all those products direct to the consumer over our website. And then we also have a wholesale business that we that we run to to supply local uh, restaurants and butcher stores and such. All right. Very good. You have a lot of things going on there. The first thing that jumps out at me, Long Island. I don't think Long Island and think of grass-fed beef, lamb, or anything. Well, yeah, you're right. And pretty much nobody else does as well. Maybe with the exception of me. But also perhaps, Cal, you know, maybe that is the opportunity. You know, if you think, if you think about it, we're, you know, we're, you know, our most Western farm is about 50 miles outside of New York City and uh, a lot closer to, you know, some, some other big food areas, uh, Brooklyn, Queens. We're very close to Westchester, of course. Our you know backyard is Nassau and Suffolk counties uh, in Long Island. You know, quite quite a few consumers, and many of them are looking for, for you know local local locally raised proteins. Now, how big is Long Island? So, if you were to draw, so so it's it's very difficult to say, right? Because the traffic uh, in and around New York City really can distort things. But let's say it's. Let's say there's no traffic. You can drive from New York City to the end of Long Island in about um, two hours. You know, we're uh, towards the end of uh, Long Island, heading heading east. Long Island is bordered by Long Island Sound. On the other side would be Connecticut and then the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, very good. So that results in pretty mild weather, I would assume, for the most part. Yeah, it's a great place to to have pastures. Despite New Yorkers complaining constantly about the weather, it's not that. You know, we do we do get a fair amount of humidity in the summer, and we can have some days that are well into the nineties. But for the most part, it's fairly temperate. The winters are reasonable. We do get snow, of course, but 
the amount of the too. So it's, it's, it's really very reasonable. But the, the downside to it is that we're on sandy soils. That makes it a challenge. And in fact, that's that's been a challenge for the business for the you know since since we've started and this past see this past winter we made the investment and started irrigating our largest farm, which was a big undertaking. Very good, very good. Now you started, I think you said in 2015. Did you grow up in agriculture? What brought you to agriculture? No, not at all. You know, my background is in actually is in finance. That's where the first part of my you know, professional career was in in New York City and and half the time in New York City and then the other half of the years in London. And when my my wife decided it was time to come back from Europe, we moved to our home on Easter Long Island. And distributing into New York City wasn't of interest anymore for me. And I realized that that I needed something to to do and wanted a challenge, but I also wanted something that I I didn't, you know, that would be a learning experience and ultimately good for the environment. And and that's when I started developing the business of Ecobon Farms. When did you decide, oh, we're doing agriculture and when you decided to get cat, well, actually, I don't want to assume that. What did you get first? So the first and up until, you know, really a year or two ago, it was only grass and beef. And so that's where, it, it, and it, you know, it was for whatever reason, it, it's not necessarily the most profitable product, you know, compared to the other proteins. It was the one that I was for whatever reason, most interested in. Um, oh, yeah. And so, yeah, we started uh, with grass-fed beef yeah, from day one, and it's it, you know, it's, our, it's our biggest product. We introduced pasture pork, lamb, and chicken. We sort of piloted the, 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 the three proteins uh, over the last year or two, and then we went into uh, full-scale, I would say, production on those three on the, the Portland chicken this season. So when you got your cattle, did you what did you have in way of land to run cattle? The land on Eastern Long Island, even I your folks the land is very, very expensive. It's prohibitively expensive. I mean you wouldn't be able to make a, a positive return on a farming operation if, if you were to go and, and purchase the, the land. And so we Started and still do lease all of the farms that, that we graze. And we started, which wasn't easy, by the way, because of course, landowners, all of which are, were, are or were farmers, uh, clearly knew that I didn't have any experience in this. And so that was a big challenge, right? You, you, know, you really needed to do some convincing in order to get farmers to lease us their, their land. But now we don't have a problem with it at all. In fact, we get, we get a, a, a lot of calls every season to uh, take over larger properties in particular. Those that don't, don't want to put their properties into sod production, typically, you know, we'll, we'll get the call. We started with 20 acres. And then we started leasing, you know, now we have close to 300 or so acres that we're grazing. Not all a pasture, some of, some of that acre is in woods, but we, you know, we sell up pasture, the cattle, and in particular, the, you know, the pasture pigs spend most of their time in solo pasture. And is all your acres there on Long Island? Yeah, they're all on Long Island. That's the good news. The bad news is that they're not... 
they're not adjacent to each other necessarily. And so logistics, yeah, so logistics and uh, moving ourselves and our equipment as well as the, the animals around through rotation, not only, you know, on the farm, but throughout the farms. So that's, you know, that's part of what we had to develop that, that, that may have been a bit unique to, to our operation. Perhaps others do it as well, I'm sure. But when you're so close to New York City, you can't get, you know, 500 contiguous acres. It just doesn't, it really doesn't exist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got that 20 acres. You went and bought some cows, some stalkers. What was your process there? You know, we spent, you know, we spent one of the things that we had to do because the you know, labor rates are very expensive on Long Island, as you probably can imagine. Also, there's not, there's no expertise in terms of livestock, Eastern Island. So it wasn't like I could go to a neighbor and ask, you know, how, how do I put together a you know, high tensile fence or what do I use for stock water or, you know, what do I seed my fields, my pastures with? So, so, you know, early on, there was a lot of learning and, and that thankfully I was able to do with a few really amazing people that didn't necessarily live nearby, but were very generous with their time and knowledge. And, and then we had to start doing everything by ourselves. We couldn't afford we, we couldn't afford, we couldn't make a return on, on the investment if we were going to bring in people to build our fences or to, you know, develop our stock water, even, you know, drill a well. It's just, you know, the, the margins aren't, aren't, so we had to do it all ourselves, which we did. And, and, and that also, that was, it was part of the excitement. Um, it was getting it all together. You know, ourselves, you know, we made a lot of mistakes, obviously, but um, we got our fences together, we got stock order together, you know, we leaned heavily on, you know, a few, as I said, mentors in order to guide us, you know, and then pray when we, when we, it's the first, it's a little bit different when cattle get out, although thankfully this hasn't happened, but uh, it would be a little bit different, right, if cattle get out on Long Island, New York, versus in, say, a more rural area, upstate New York, or Montana, or Wyoming, or something like that. So, you know, the, 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 the community, the, our neighbors, the, you know, I would imagine, at least they, they wouldn't know what to do. Right? They would, it, would, it would be extraordinary if that were to happen. So, you know, we do have to, we do have to be very, very careful. You know, one thing that's brought up quite often with animals is to have animals that are locally adapted. But it sounds like you probably weren't able to get very many animals from Long Island. You had to go off the island to get cattle. Yeah, we source none of the the you know, feeders that, that we buy from uh, Long Island. We start, you know, we. we when the business grows, right, you, the your sort of approach to things change changes drastically. So in the early days, you know, if we were going and driving for a few hours, let's say to upstate New York and, and buying five steers or heifers, right, because they were the, we thought they, they were the, the perfect genetics and the perfect phenotypes and stuff. That was sort of like a big deal, but we just you know, now we can't do that, right? We just don't have enough time in order. So now, you know, we have to move into some 
bigger markets where we could find you know the right genetics that were uh, not only you know used to our our weather conditions on Long Island, which is not important actually, but also the you know the forage sequences that we use because we're you know we're primarily in the finishing stage when we're talking about cattle. Uh, we're in you know, the finishing stage of the animal's life, and so you know the, the levels of energy that the animal is coming off of uh, versus coming on to when they get to our uh, farms you know, needs to be fairly consistent because we don't want to have periods where they're not gaining weight. So it sounds like sourcing animals was somewhat of a challenge. Has it gotten? You mentioned there about numbers, but overall, has it gotten easier? By building contacts, or do you still have a lot of issues with sourcing animals? I would say that second to labor, it's 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 the most it was the most challenging, and, and it continues to be the most challenging. And I think I think the people people that come and see the operation underestimate how much time I, in particular, may spend on the road meeting with other livestock producers. Not necessarily because we can't find the right genetics. And speaking openly, it's it's quite difficult to find people that are trustworthy. And that's an unfortunate <clears throat> that's an unfortunate aspect in the business that I I wasn't aware of and made some costly mistakes. Right? Not everybody is as um, is as genuine as, as, as you know. Right. It'd make it a lot easier if you could take everyone's word at face value. Yeah, and I think I think it works both ways too because there's a little bit of concern, obviously, about my performance. Not you know, it's not it's not like I have a history in the business, and I probably still don't. But in the early years, I don't come across as, I mean, wasn't coming across this particular knowledge. I was able to repeat what certain people were telling me, and I you know, but then I thought I knew, and sometimes I got lucky, and sometimes I didn't. In terms of actually selecting the animals that would work for the operation and, and you know and, and what we're doing fiction but i think i'm a little bit better right now but it's something that it's something that i spend a lot of time working on there, there are some deeper markets down south right south of us so as you move into um yeah so as you certainly as you move into pennsylvania and then you move into west virginia then you start to you're able to start to find herds, be big enough to fill plant loads with correct genetics, which, which is what we're, you know, we're looking for. Very good. And I hate to show my ignorance here, but I am. How far is it from you to Pennsylvania? Yeah, so, <clears throat> you know, again, without traffic, you could be in Pennsylvania within two hours. So, you know, right, right, past, right past you know, through Jersey, New Jersey, and then into, you know, Pennsylvania, probably take about two and a half hours. But the issue is that, you know, you have to take cattle over, maybe it's interesting or not to, to, to their viewers, but you got you to take cattle over the, the George Washington Bridge and the Brownsnake Bridge, right? And you got to take them across the, across, you know, Bronx Expressway, right? So you have to think about the time, that you're that you're moving cattle. You have to think about the weather. You have to think about road noise. You know, there there are things that maybe you know some other producers don't need to think about in getting animals. Even you know even truck drivers that you know contract to bring animals in. Most of them have never been on Long Island. Those are are things that I wouldn't even think about. You know, of course, I live in Oklahoma. Traffic is bad enough in Tulsa. I just skirt around Tulsa. I don't worry about it. 
you know? So yeah, that's some aspects that I wouldn't have thought about or considered that other people are faced with. This is where we got to you very early on with some of the people that, you know, mentored me is you know, there are basic concepts, right? And then those basic concepts definitely need to be adapted to where you're, you're raising the animal and that's labor and that's, you know, where, where you're going to you know, get the animals, how, you know, how is the community going to react to having cattle or lambs or next to them. And it, it was a little bit different and it required us to, to, you know, to make some changes. Now, when you got your, your first cattle there, you, you leased 20 acres. Did you have to go in and do any infrastructure to get started or was it pretty well fenced? How was that process? No, we had to do everything. So we had to put, we had, we had to put the fence up. We had to construct you know, stock water lines that we use. You know, we're not farmers. You know, we're, so you know, something like plowing and disting and then seeding is something that wasn't part of the that wasn't part of the plan, right? So we had to we had to do all of that and learn how to do that. Thankfully, we don't have to do it. But you know, the first time we get to you know any property, because I don't think any of my team likes to farm very much. It's very hard compared to at least what we believe, you know, raising livestock involves. Maybe, maybe farmers would, would think livestock are, are difficult, but, but we don't necessarily. But we had to do it all, and, and we did. And we started, you know, we started slow. You know, we, we didn't, you know, we, we just, we wanted to, we wanted to make sure that we were you know, progressing in the, in the right direction every year. Oh, yeah. And when you, you mentioned water, for instance, are you putting any pipes in so you have water everywhere? Are you using natural water? Yeah, so the so depends on the farm, but you know, as I said before, we lease all the, the, the properties now they're long term leases. But what we needed to do is we needed to think about constructing the infrastructure so that it was almost entirely portable. Taking down a, a high tensile fence or or taking off, you know, stock water lines or whatever. And so everything that we did was designed to be essentially portable. Maybe that would have been different if, if we started buying our own properties, but we did. So I'll give you a for instance. Maybe what's a little bit different on our farm is that we don't trench any pipes. We use a material obviously polyethylene that, that lays on top of the, the surface. And so if we needed to come off a property we could roll that up very quickly we wouldn't have to we wouldn't have to dig anything up and that's what we use and, and it works for you high tensile fence and, and high density you know polyethylene lines sort of we've gotten really good at that on your high density polyethylene pipe are you able to use that year round or what challenges do does winter provide for you so the first winter, first maybe two winters, we overwintered the herd at a part of farm upstate, just because I didn't know what was involved in carrying cattle over the winter. Uh, it's also very expensive to land hay. We don't cut our own hay; we import it, right? So, but it's expensive to land hay on Long Island. There's no nobody growing hay next to us, so we're bringing it in from upstate, uh, upstate New York. And and one of the things that you know I. You know, I, I, it was important to me in order to keep my labor year round. I didn't want to have seasonal labor because it's, I just think it's, it's not the contract I wanted to make with, with the guys. And so we need something to do in the winter. We can keep busy. 
And so it didn't make sense to overwinter animals at other farms when we had labor. And, and so, you know, it's funny because I look at it, I, oh, I look at it almost every day, which is a, a geothermal water that, that we, you know, brought in, I think it was a few thousand dollars. It's a big, big investment for us at the time. It, by the way, it works great. And it works great on Long Island. And it works great in like North Dakota. The thing is fantastic. But then, it just, I don't know, I think I, I think I saw it on an email or my phone somewhere. They, they sell little uh, nozzles that you put at the end of your shock water lines. Now, when it freezes, it just creates a little drip of water. I think they cost $19. And then all of a sudden, our entire, our entire farm for like $100 could, um, would have running water anywhere on the farm all winter. And which allowed us, yeah, which is fantastic because it allowed, it allowed us to bale feed in rotation around the, around the farms because we could put water right next to, you know, the animals and it, you know, it's, uh, it's fantastic. So I wish I would have known that earlier on, but we use them, you know, we use them quite a bit in the winter. Yeah. Very good. And and that's glad to know that it works that well. I've seen the ads, so of course the ads tell me that it works well. But yeah, for us, for us, because high density polyethylene can freeze and thaw without cracking, and so if you can just get to keep the water moving just a little bit, it works. Oh, very good. I had wondered about that. I know, like Plex that they or PEX that they put in houses and stuff will fr- can freeze and thaw, and I thought that. HDPE would do that, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, that's great. You can run over it, just not with a not with a plow or this, which I've done. Um, <laughs> yeah, thing. I mean, you can run over with vehicles and stuff. It's really fine. What diameter pipe are you using? We use an um, inch and a half inch uh, on some of the smaller farms, but inch and a half on some of the big ones. So you mentioned earlier, everything on your lease farms portable. So. Well, because it's leased land and you have multiple farms. Are you moving that pipe each time you move cattle or do you have enough on the, the property? It just stays there while you have a lease there. The property runs right underneath the what we call our, our graze lines, which are the semi-permeant internal fencing. Now, before we started running sheep, we had just one line, one single strand line going down the middle of all the, the layouts were exactly the same. I mean, the logic was exactly the same. So we didn't have to relearn, you know, anything. Spares that we needed for the stop water or the fencing, you know, can work across any of the properties. And we even, you know, and we use these, um, I think they've got a business that they're called Pasture Pro, you know, fencing. Oh, yeah. And so we, you know, this, this really is 100% credit goes to a fellow by the name of Jim Garish. But Jim, you know, Jim had helped us uh, think through the setup of the, uh, of the farm. So, you know, laying the stock water, spacing of the pasture pros to, you know, map out the, you know, spacing would, would, would mean that we have, you know, an acre of, of, of land between each of the pasture pros, so we don't need to stand outside doing math. We could put animals anywhere on property, and within today, it's within 300 feet. They have fresh running water. Moving, you know, the, the portable troughs takes just a few short minutes. It's really, it's, it's very, very slick across all the, you know, the properties. And so it was that, it was that initial sort of work to, to really think through with, 
with someone who had done this hundreds of times, laid out, you know, what the infrastructure should look like, what what materials to use. In, in, in fairly, you know, now we can do it, now we can do it ourselves, right? Now we're coming from the property, we, you know, we, but the initial, the initial thought was, was done with Jim. One thing really interesting that you said through there, you have your Pasture Pro post set so that it's an acre whenever you divide your pasture. Yeah, which allows us, you know, because every, every morning when we do grazing, you know, we observe the grace from yesterday, we calculate, we, we know the demand, if you will, we calculate the implied supply that we based on the grace and the residual. And, and in order to do all that, you need to know exactly, you know, the, the acreage that the animals were on. It's not like we're measuring that every day. We're just observing between, you know, posts that at one point when we set it up were properly measured. As you're going through that and you get your system or infrastructure set up and watering how was finishing cattle on grass did you work with jim on that or and how challenging was that oh, the answer is that i work with jim yes as well as others right that you know I, in fact I, I i spent time at the noble institute yeah it was, it was it was very learning learning a lot about the business but the concept of just finishing animals because we're not cow family, we would never be able to. We would never be able to make money. Just that concept, like you, you will never be able to survive with keep cow cow because of all the factors that some of which I've discussed. That 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 was you know that was a discussion that the Egyptian had, and that I would I'd probably be trying to cow camp right now if that's if that's the case. And so very very different. Then you know then it became okay. Well, what kind of Forage do you need in order to finish animals? Because that's presumably that's going to be different than you know than building bone and muscle, right? Layering fat, you know, has energy demands that are beyond you know building bone and muscle. And so, well, how you know how did we see our pastures relative to someone who was cow-cat? So those 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 would be made, you know major differences that that if I you know I wasn't working with someone that was very knowledgeable that I, I, I would have missed. I mean hopefully I would have gotten in at this point. It does take time. Some of us learn slower than others. <laughs> I, I have to say I'm guilty of that. So you're working, you're getting these cows, you're you're working to or scabs and finishing them on grass. Did you have a processor close by? Did you have any trouble finding a processor? No, we didn't have a pro- we don't have a processor nearby. I mean, we do have to travel <clears throat> quite a bit. Traveling, traveling is fine, right? We we can do that. It's it's finding the capacity. That's one, and it's and it's, and it's slaughter. But but I don't. But perhaps not something I didn't realize. I, mean, I always anticipated slaughter would be a big hurdle for us. We were able to find the slaughter. It was a struggle to find the capacity over the years that we've grown. A bigger bottleneck. A bigger bottleneck is the copenhagen side of the business. You know, the, to, to be able to to sell, to be able to have you know the the carcass butcher and then you know it's made up in a very very high quality way and then packaged in a very very high quality way. If someone, you know, if someone's going to pay the premium that we that we ask them to pay the products at Economic Farms, it's going to be perfect. You know. The cuts have to be perfect. The packaging has to be perfect. You know, there's things that survive endlessly, and you know, the freezer it's going to survive. UPS shipping, you know, sometimes across 
the U.S. And so that co-packing capacity, I think, is a bigger hurdle, at least, you know, for us than the, than the slaughter. And when you got those first animals processed, ready to sell, how did you go about marketing them and and where? Well, we have a side of the business, but it's an entirely different business, which is marketing the, the beef. It's, it's almost got nothing to do with the farm. Um, the skill set that's involved, uh, the investment that's involved, you know, there's the labor, the, you know, the team that you need to have in order to keep everything working properly and then optimizing. We you know, initially, we, uh, you know, before, before the, we started building the front end, the retail side of the business, which is all online on day one. So we were to some extent ready to sell the product online we received you know the first maybe it was two or five carcasses back you know you know butchered the beef didn't taste we have great customers and, and, and so they sort of went on that journey with us surprisingly thankfully i'm a, a pretty tough critic we're getting there right in terms of the way i want you know the way i wanted to eat but you know the, the online part works it's just the beef didn't taste <laughs> how do you ensure that your beef has a consistent flavor to me is this is everything about the operation right so it, it's if you're going if you're going to be 100 percent grass fed you can't just snap your fingers and have great tasting beef right like you're starting from a standing you know stop like like we were right you over the years hopefully you're doing the right thing and you're building soil health right and then you're Building healthier forage, um, then ultimately, and as you, as you work on sourcing better genetics uh, and get the forage sequences down, you know you can layer fat, you know, more consistently, right? You can you know, those weight gains will be higher and more consistent, which which is absolutely required. But it's not again, if maybe if it's different with grain. I don't know, but if it's but if you're true to grass, it's gonna. There's a curve that, you know, there's a, there's a learning curve, right? There's a, there's a development curve. And, and if you're coming on to, as we are, conventionally farmed soils, that, you know, that takes time. And, and, and in time takes money. You just need to be prepared for that. Uh, and so when people say, you know, uh, regenerative farming, it's like it, it, this is a years and years long journey. And uh, we're learning that nature does move, you know, quickly, but, you know, not not in a matter of a year or two, right? It, it does take time, and you have to be consistent in the way that you manage them. The the operation ultimately to promote soil health first and foremost, even at the expense of of weight gain and and product quality. The the, the last thing I'd say, and this was, you know, we, we didn't want to do it, but I felt like in order to produce a a high quality grass fed product more consistently, because you can spend a lot of money on. To, to basically acquire a new customer. But if they're not, you know, buying your beef three, four, five times, you're not making money on that customer. It just costs too much money to get them. And so that, you know, the eating experience, the flavor, and then the, the, the tenderness needs to be consistently there over those purchases. And what, what we didn't want to, but we did, which, which is invested in irrigation. And, you know, it's transformed, you know, the operation. I mean, it, it's it, it's really been fantastic in terms of 
you know, our, our games and also the stress load that we were carrying around whether or not, you know, we were going to hit our slaughter slots, which, you know, we need to book, you know, up to a year in advance, whether the animal's ready or not. And so, and so, you know, you're, you're, you're stressing because, you know, the animal, let's say, is gaining 1.7 pounds a day and needs to gain 2.1 pounds in order to get to the slaughter slot. And, and it's very stressful where now that we can, you know, now that we've got, you know, fencing and the stock water, you know, the operations all set up. Now with the irrigation, it's, it's allowed us to, it's allowed us to be much more consistent in terms of the animals that we're bringing to, to, to processing. Moving on from beef cattle just a little bit, you all added pork, lamb, and chicken. What prompted the decision to expand into those species? I think it, so it varied. We, I've always wanted to have lamb. We don't, you know, we don't use any synthetic fertilizers. We don't use any uh, herbicides, pesticides, fungus, we nothing, zero. We do, talk, we do have a compost operation on the farms, but, uh, but that's it. Uh, and, and, then, and then, you know, our management of the animals. So we do have weeds, and in particular, some, you know, some of those weeds, unless we're being, you know, unless we're putting a lot of pressure on the, anim- on the cattle, you know, they won't consume them. So, so, so what we were doing is we're saying, well, you know, we, we want, you know, we want to put more pressure on the animals to, to graze more uniformly. And then, you know, and then the average daily gains on those animals suffer. And so what we did was we had to bring in the second class, which are the, which are the lambs who do a better job at some of the, some of the eager species. I was, I was watching a group of uh, sheep go out, um, you know, the weed is called mugwort. It's a horrible thing, and they seem to love it. So that made me very yeah. That made me it makes me happy every time I see them. So that was the that was a lamb chickens. We don't we don't have uh, lamb and we just we just raise meat chicken. That that really was because of the seasonality in the beef business. So what we found was you know if you have if your labor is there or year round. Right. And, and, and your, you know, your fixed costs are, are the year, year round. You know, if you're not in that barbecue season, then, you know, it's a little thing in terms of revenue. And so that, you know, we wanted to smooth out some of that seasonality with chicken and pork. So that, and then there's obviously there's benefit. We, you know, what we started doing was running the chickens. So the, those internal fences that we use for rotational grazing. Um, that requires a fair amount of labor. You got to weed whack. You know, you got to maintain that fence line if you want it to be hot. And we've we've developed a system where the, basically the chickens are grazing under the under the, the high tensile fencing of the internal fencing. It's taking labor out of the you know the the equation for us. It's just so we're, we're trying. You know that I've also found the last thing I'd say about that is when someone comes to the website to buy the beef. Right, that that's great. Uh, it's fantastic. But they then go into the the supermarket to buy the pork leg and the chicken, and I found I just thought, boy, that's and it's occasionally beef at the at the supermarket too, right? Because because maybe they didn't get to the water in, or um, we were out of stock, and so now they're coming to the website and able to buy, you know, those four kind of the four big proteins, and do it more consistently, right? Encouraging that consumer to spend more at your stop rather than going elsewhere to get get the yeah. rest of their shopping list. Yeah, you know, I think for us, 
while while you're at the, while you're at our website, you know you're gonna the peak is expensive too. I mean that's just the truth. If you look at the relative costs and what families can afford, and you know there there needs to be a healthy dose of, of chicken in there. Yeah, yeah. Now when you you talked about your sheep while ago, do you run your sheep with your cattle? Yeah. What what we try to do is we try to now it's not like this is you know top five on our list of things that we want from our cow calf producers, but they would be great, right? If they if they also had you know lamb on on their farms and they you know and now it, that's that's pretty much just not the case. And so what we do is we socialize, you know, when we're confirming that everybody respects the hotlines in the corral, we socialize the lambs with, with the beef things. And um, and what, what we found is, right, if, we, if we're, we're selecting cattle, the num- number one, we're on Long Island, and I mentioned, right, where our neighbors are a football throw away. So we're selecting for temperament, right? Yes, small frame, you know, grass or genetics, or you know, number one is temperament. And so if we've done that right, you know, usually not a problem whatsoever. It's a day or two before, you know, they stop chasing each other. And then it's a week or two before they bond it. And once they bond, they want to they be together in, in our experience. So Now, one thing on that bonding of your, your calves and your, your lambs, are you bringing in newly weaned lambs and you're putting them with yearling steers or heifers and you're finding it takes a couple weeks and they bond pretty good you're goofing around together chasing each other and stuff but within a week or two we found that our internal fences are really hot um so if the sheep can't squirt through the internal fence to you know to the other pasture then they find a way to get along yeah well i know i've read about bonding lambs with cattle and and especially if you're using weaned lambs or newly weaned lambs and you're bonding them to cattle less than 18 months old, they bond fairly quick and, yeah. and it, it's a fairly strong bond. However, I have not tried it yet. So one day I may give it a try and see how it works. You know, what we learned is just really you get, get, get those internal fences and you know, you know your cattle than anybody, and so you know you've got a little naughtiness running through them, or if they're generally relaxed, and and if they are, at least in our experience, which is limited, right? But it's it's been okay. Yeah, very good. Uh, Stephen, before we wrap this up and move on to the famous four questions, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you think our listeners would benefit from? I think we covered a lot. Maybe maybe just emphasize how important it is that those that you're building those relationships on the, not only the suppliers right to the business, which I think is important. Everything from, you know, us boxes to, you know, the, the consultants or mentors to in particular, the slug facility owners and the, and the co-packers. I think it was, I think it was Cornell. I'm not sure. One of the, one of the uh, universities really emphasized how important it is that you figure out ways to, allow both of your businesses to succeed, right? There are things that we can do simply cut sheets, pay our bills on time, never, uh, if we commit to slots, we, you know, fill them. Those, those help, you know, a partner's business. And so we, we, you know, we do our best to do it. So it's, yeah, I think it goes both ways. Maybe that's something there. Yeah. And that's excellent advice there. Those relationships and being a good customer client to them as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Very good. 
Well, Stephen, it is time for our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our very first question, what is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? So there are two, I think you mentioned Jay Garrish, a little secret is that, I, and I think, I think it's still, you can do it, but you certainly were able to do it years ago. You can go to his website and, and you can download, you know, there's dozens of PowerPoint slides that he's put together where he narrates. So like building fencing, the stock water, thoughts around genetics, every kind of, you know, key topic that, that he'd be interested in, you could, you could pretty much just have right right here, your computer. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Of course, and then, you know, Walt Davis, how not to go rope ranging. And that's the, that's the, that's to me the, the big one. And I, and I do read once a year and I, and I buy for everybody on my team. Yeah. Excellent selection there. And, and Jim Garrish is always a great resource. I enjoy reading that, How to Not Go Broke Ranching. And as you speak of it, I probably should go read it again. I had, uh, I had an opportunity to, to, to study under Walt at, at the Noble Institute in Oklahoma. Uh, oh, yes. Before it passed, yeah. And it was fantastic. It was just yeah, really great. Oh, I imagine so, yes. Our second question, what is your favorite tool for the farm? We have a, a morning routine because if you're not, you know, if you don't do things in routine, you forget to do them and then you get in trouble. So, you know, we all kind of carry around a, a little, I think it's made by safe mix, a little handheld fence voltage reunit. In terms of the tool, the other, the other one is a little, it's a little flip box cutter, but you don't know what's in your pocket. You can clip it on. It's always there. It's always sharp. It doesn't get in the way. It's exactly what at least you know, I need. So those, I won't start the day without those two. Oh, yes. Very good selections. Yes. Thirdly, what would you tell someone just getting started? Consider the class of life that you start with. You know, you want to do you know, the life, the, the, you know, the, the cycle of life, the shorter it is, you know, the, you know, the more immediate the settle, the better, right, in terms of cash flow. That's one. You know, beef, beef, I think, is a, is a tough one to start with. That's one. Two, you, you probably spend a lot more money than you think. So make sure you've got, you know, money in the reserve because you're going you're gonna to need it. Especially if you're going to, if you're truly going to be, you know, going down the regenerative journey, because you know it's not, it's not like you're going to have perfect finishing quality pasture the first season. You know, it's going to take four or five years in order to, you know, to to, to start, you know, being able to, to finish on that. At least that's my experience. So be patient. Be patient. Excellent advice. And Stephen, where can others find out more about you? So we just, we just revamp we try to revamp the website in the winter so so we're, we're actually starting to to map that out but we put a lot more information on our website acabonicfarms.com which you know, goes into sort of our approach to soil health and then our approach to uh, managing animals and you know our approach to partnering with the community in terms of supporting our business and what we do and why we do it. So that, it's a good place, to, I think, to, to go and learn more about us. Wonderful. And we will put links to your website as well as your social media in our show notes. Stephen, thank you for hopping on here and sharing with us today. We appreciate it. Now, thank you very much. I, I enjoyed it and it was a pleasure speaking to you. And um, I wish you continued success with the podcast.
Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.